0: Welcome to the Upland Nation Podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host. Glad you could join me. Hope you're having a great season. Ah, I'm talking to you from Huron, uh, South Dakota, where we're in the midst of our Fur Feathers Friends uh, gathering. Uh, hope you can join us next year. In the meanwhile, hope you're taking somebody hunting and showing off your dog. That's the best way to get somebody psyched up about bird hunting and becoming a conservationist. So keep up the good work if you've already done that. We're gonna talk a little bit about that in a few moments. But first, let me tell you what we're gonna learn today. We've got the spokesman and director of the National Bob White and Grassland Initiative. John Morgan is gonna tell us a little bit about what this organization is doing, why there's a name change, and uh, how they hope to improve quail numbers especially in the south so stand by for that a private sector initiative to get us access to more private ground uh it's been described as the airbnb of bird hunting sean Mahaffey will join us from wing it to ex- kind of explain why and how this is going to work you've got you will hear it here first your two cents worth as we go to the social media pages and find out how your shooting is going this season. And I don't mean just your percentages, but I'm interested in that as well. But also it sounds like there's a lot of talk about how the season is going period from bird numbers to camaraderie and that sort of thing. So stand by here on the Upland nation podcast. Speaking of the podcast, uh, I'm asking for a little bit of help from you. Your questions, my answers coming up on uh, an episode in the near future. So if you want to ask something about, well, the television game, podcasting, uh, writing, or all that important stuff, birds, bird dogs, and bird hunting, uh, leave your question on one of the social media pages. Wing Shooting USA, Upland Nation, even my personal page, Scott Linden, and I will do my best to include it in that upcoming episode. Can't vouch for the answers, but I can vouch for your great questions, and I'll do my best to get it right. Yeah, here we're still managing Flick's uh, little toe injury. It's not a big deal, but it is one of those things that could slow a dog down or take him out out of the lineup for a little while. That's right, a little pad tear on his right back pinky toe, if you want to call it that. But I'm doing my best to take care of it, keeping it good and disinfected, uh, clean whenever I can, doing my best to put antiseptic on it when uh, he's sleeping, that sort of thing. Yeah, someday maybe we'll talk about that kind of stuff on the podcast. But right now he's doing fine, and I'm grateful for that. You all, you're getting out, and that's a good thing. In fact, I asked recently, and I love this because you know you know as well as I do, half the fun of bird hunting besides watching the dog is being with good friends and family. So I asked you uh, who you went with on the last hunt. I guess technically I asked the first name of who you went with, and that's even better. Stephen Wood said he went with Wayne. Timothy Palka says he went with Marie. And he better remember that name. She's his wife. Michael Salomone, I hope you're having a great time up there in the high country of Colorado. He went with Mike. Matt P. Templeton went with Ace. His pup. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of how I open the season whenever I can. By the way... Good choice of names. My first wire hair's puppy name was Ace. We added a few things to it, including... Oh, I can't say that on a family podcast. But anyway, good job. Jasper Brand took Brad. Raymond B. Boren Jr. took RJ. Are you all related? I bet you are. Well, uh, you know the drill. Take someone else hunting, make a conservationist out of them, and remember that quite often the best ambassador for turning somebody into a hunter is a hunting dog so show off your dog enjoy yourselves together out in the field were made possible in part by sage and breaker gun care products pointer shotguns mid valley clays and shooting school ringneck nation of huron south dakota yeah hello everybody and true lock choke tube and my authority website if you're looking for advice on anything from where to find public access property to hunt to shooting advice from the experts and hunting strategy and tactics as well as uh, dog care and training it's all at findbirdhuntingspots.com pretty easy pretty much your priority findbirdhuntingspots.com You know, I was looking at the map uh, before I set out for South Dakota and uh, realized that so much of the, the hunting I do is along the state borders here in Oregon. Yeah, I'm on the border of Idaho, I'm on the border of Nevada, I'm on the border of California so often. I put two and two together and got six because the other two is the big rivers that create a lot of those state lines. Not all the time, but quite often, the rivers along Oregon's borders create great bird habitat, particularly wild chuckers, wild valley quail, and wild Hungarian partridge. A lot of it's accessible because it's owned by the federal government through their Bureau of, through our Bureau of Land Management. Then there's parcels and pieces of other stuff out there. You gotta be a little careful sometimes, but most of it is free, open to the public, if your legs and your lungs are willing. So if you're headed uh, kind of east, north, south, <clears throat> whatever it is, there's probably ground for you in Oregon. Check out um, rivers like the Owyhee, the Columbia, and a few south, south end uh, borderline country that's uh, not bordered by rivers per se, but is right there along the state line between Nevada and Oregon, California and Oregon. Not much in the way of rivers out there, by the way. But anyway, take a look at the borders of Oregon the next time you're looking for a new adventure. Get in shape and uh, maybe I'll see you out there. We're brought to you in part by Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School. Their pro shop has everything you need, especially this time of year. You dropped something, you lost something, it's on that last hillside. I'll never forget leaving an entire electric collar handheld controller on a rock in a mountain range down there in that border country. From shooting glasses to gun cases, range bags to gun cleaning and bench made knives, Mid Valley clays and shooting schools, Pro Shop has it. Take a look at the long list of things that you could use at midvalleyclays.com. That's midvalleyclays.com. Well, you know, I'm always trying to learn something, and we're going to learn a lot from this guy. John Morgan is the director of the National Bob White and Grassland Initiative. Yeah, you sort of know it, but you'll know it better in a few minutes. John Morgan, welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. Thank you for having
1: me, Scott. Look forward to the chat this afternoon.
0: Yeah, and um, uh, we'll talk about the uh, the new name for the organization that uh, I remember well. In fact, I, I think I still have a hat pin from the old name way back. Um, but let's talk about the important stuff first. are you're, you're a bird hunter, aren't you?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Looking
0: forward to the fall right now. I
1: never get a chance to get out of the office and go hunt. Well, you
0: you are in a place where your season starts a little bit later than us. We're deep into it already, but we won't lament that for you. But um, you're also a member of the cult. Uh, Tell us about your new dog.
1: Yes, I just recruited a new dog to the family and the hunt party. uh, Ava is her name, and she's a a young wire-haired pointer puppy. Uh, and gaining a new appreciation or regaining my appreciation for dealing with a a puppy on a day-to-day basis.
0: Well, you have uh, chronological bookends over there. You have an old one and a young one now. How are they getting along? Yeah, I've really been shocked
1: at how long the two – how well the two are getting along. And and I'll tell you, the old one was starting to get some separation anxiety when we'd leave the home. I always raise companion hunting dogs. I mean, we want them to be a part of our family, and we keep them inside. So as she was getting older, you know, she was really struggling with that separation when we left her. And having this puppy has actually really rejuvenated her. So it's actually been an ideal situation. They get along wonderfully. We're not seeing those the symptoms of separation anxiety when we leave now, so it's been that's been the best part of the puppy so far is how it's really brought back to life in some ways. Our our older wire hair, they they're getting along great. Well, they fight all the time, but it, it's a playful fighting. So
0: I love it. And and interestingly, that you know the first thing I was thinking was, well, everybody will advise you never to get. A new dog of the same gender as the old dog but it sounds like it's working just fine
1: yes and they are both females uh, and they they get along really well so I mean heck they sleep in the same dog bed now so they're doing wonderful
0: and um, one or the other or both are going to go with you on your favorite kind of bird hunt very soon if you could chase anything what would it be
1: Well, I mean, obviously I'm the director of the National Bob White Grassland Initiative, so Bob White are really high on my list. But I will say that I did miss out on what my true deep down passion is because I grew up in Northern Pennsylvania and I love hunting rough grouse. And my group just got back from Northern Wisconsin on their annual pilgrimage that I was unfortunately unable to join them this time around, just given my heavy work schedule right now. Um, But you know, when push comes to shove, have to admit deep down i'm a i'm an avid rough grouse hunter uh with my secondary favorite being of course the northern bobwhite
0: well tell me about uh uh, what what is it about grouse hunting you like so much i just talked about it earlier in the podcast and how so many guys just love hearing those flushes in the distance they even track them Uh, but there's got to be more to it than that isn't there john
1: well, yeah, I mean, some of it's just because, you know, that was your first exposure, at least for me as an upland bird hunter in my youth. A lot of it just comes back to those traditions of your family and, and where you grew up back home. So I think there's some dose of that within it. Um, just the sudden, explosive, thunderous rise of a rough grouse, is it, it's definitely an exhilarating experience. And really, it's the challenge of it, really. So, it's so difficult to hit those doggone things that I really do embrace challenging pursuits, whether it be personally or professionally. Uh, I really like the challenge of it and the reward when you finally make that, that connection with it, with connection with the bird, the dog, and putting it all together. It's, it's a rare occasion that generates some worthy celebration
0: you know you just hit on two things that are uh, th- that are absolutely spot on the first one is you know I'm a music major so I never thought about this I can't believe I never thought about it until now but of all the birds all the upland birds at least that I know of and I've personally experienced the deepest lowest frequency wing beat is Ruffies. yeah that's a good thought too
1: yeah certainly with the, your auditory background that's absolutely spot on that drumming is so unique and special.
0: I think that has uh, that, that gets down. Yes, just like, you know, the other problem with me is I can't hear very well because I was in the front row of too many rock concerts back in the seventies, but but, you know, you're in front of those speakers and you know, what hits you, it's that bass and the bass drum, but, but they're, they're, they're shaking you down into your kidneys. And I think that's the same thing that happens with a rough grouse flush yeah i've never made that
1: connection scott but i I mean i really like that that kind of thought process it is a really unique tone that comes from a rough grass rise that is like no other game bird i think you've You're spot on on
0: that okay thanks that's my next magazine article idea so goodbye i'll talk with you later (laughs) (laughs) no the other one is that idea and you can offer up some some help for us and even even in the bob white world we're shooting amongst trees a lot do you have a trick a suggestion for those of us who are afraid to shoot trees
1: uh, don't be afraid to shoot trees. I yeah. I don't know how many I've shot in half in the rough grass woods. Um, I mean, you just have to I mean, I've always like they say in baseball, keep your eye on the ball and you don't worry about necessarily what's between you and the bird sometimes. You've just got to stick with your uh, stick with the eye, go with the follow through, pull the trigger and you hope that it, I think subconsciously, your brain does a lot for you, so don't let the gray matter get in the way. Uh, <laughs> you'll be surprised how often your brain will automatically pick that hole. Sometimes you'll fail, shoot tree and half, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But yeah. you might be surprised how many calculations your brain actually does uh, instinctually while you're shooting at flying game. So uh, I just had some shotgun training just by happenstance because of our new home at clemson university when we had a a partnership meeting there and and we had some shotgun coaches and that was the number one piece of advice they shared with me of course there was no trees in the area but they're like just trust trust your gray matter trust your brain it's doing all of these calculations for you it's when you start thinking about it is when things go wrong and i think they were spot on
0: Oh, no no doubt about it. That's, in fact, great advice no matter what. Uh, but I still think the the guys who invented skeet back in the day who claimed they were grouse hunters and they were making a game for, for grouse hunting forgot a key element, and that is a whole bunch of tree trunks on the skeet field.
1: Exactly. <laughs> Throw that in. We'll see how many they hit.
0: Okay. Let me write that down too.
1: Right.
0: <laughs> uh, um, you, you've, you've alluded to it. I introduced you as the new-ish director of, uh, of the National Bob White and Grassland Initiative. Take me from, uh, from, from uh, square one. First off, explain what you are and why the name is now slightly different.
1: Sure, I'll do my best to do this in the a segment as I possibly can. We've been around for 29 years, so we this is a really long-running partnership. We're a collection of 25 state wildlife agencies, but we're also connected with a host of nonprofits. When you think about all of the quail groups out there, Quail Forever, we've got uh, Quail and Upland Wildlife Federation, the Quail Coalition in Texas, the Quail and Upland Game Alliance, and. Uh, kind of the Mid-South, so there's a whole host of nonprofits that we work with that even goes as far as National Wild Turkey Federation and, and even others. And we also are connected to a host of universities across the country, so we're a really dynamic partnership that we're solely focused on recovering habitat for largely the benefit of Bob White, but I will transition to why we've changed our name to try to really increase the relevancy of our work to a much broader base of society. Uh, if We recognize that upland game bird hunters are not the majority in the country. And a lot of what we need to do for the conservation of grasslands and all the game birds that are associated with them is change how people use and view the land. And the way we can do that is in many ways bigger than the birds themselves. Uh, they're charismatic, so I think it's something, a flagship we can sell to people But in many ways, we've got to start resonating with more and more people and broadening our message is really what we're trying to do to become more and more relevant to every person out there that should care about the benefits of habitat that not only bring us birds, they bring us improved water quality, uh, soil health, air quality. You know, wherever you fall out on, you know, carbon, climate change, and all of that. I mean, a lot of the plants that we promote put a lot of carbon deep down in the soil which uh, provide those types of benefits as well and ultimately we want to start connecting our work to human health and wellness Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. a a lot of the things that we do can directly affect people whether it's just their stress levels anxiety uh whatever you get from getting away from the the crazy world that we live in nowadays getting back to nature and what we saw through the global pandemic really kind of amplified that, you know, a lot of people were going back and getting outdoors. Oh, yeah. And, and I think this is a tremendous opportunity for us to capitalize on that. Now that we kind of come out of the pandemic, Uh, we've got people have a different connection now, the outdoors, I think, than they did going in. Let's capitalize on that. That's all part of what we're trying to do right now.
0: You know the different, and and you rattled off all those other groups, all of them doing great work. But I think when I last talked with uh, somebody from your organization back when it had a different acronym, uh, the the difference between you and so many others is you. you I'll just loosely say you're way more academic. Uh-oh. Oh. <laughs> I mean that in a good way. Hey, I was an academic too, so, so I don't, don't take that the wrong way. But you guys are about data and organizing uh, uh, data and data collection. Am I still on the right track there? What, what are the principal uh, activities the National Bob White and Grassland Initiative does?
1: Yeah, that's a a great question, Scott, and I appreciate you teeing it up. Um, We are very much science-based, as I noted earlier. We're based out of Clemson University. Um, Yeah, I have a pretty strong science background and have been doing science my whole professional career.
0: Which which Um, doesn't explain anything about wire hairs, by the way. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, no, not at
1: all, not at all. (laughs) So... Um, We have what we call a coordinated implementation program, which, you know, I hate to get too much into jargon for your listeners, but it's an adaptive management framework, uh, and that's founded on some, you know, relatively simple principles. We plan, we do, we learn, and we repeat that cycle, okay?
2: Yeah.
1: Um, So we, we plan some conservation actions, we implement them while we're monitoring what's happening from them, we learn from the interaction between what those birds and those environmental benefits that we're looking for, how they respond to those actions. Uh, through that learning, we replan, implement new strategies, and it's just an iterative loop that goes around round and round and round as the years pass by. And it's a way to learn while doing, which we really want our state agency partners to really embrace that philosophy moving forward. We haven't had a strong history of doing it that way uh, in the past, we've fostered more of a research project. You learn from a specific research project, and then you take that learning and you just start applying it. This is different. It's it's an iterative learning process that so you continue learning through time, and that is the foundations now of what our partnership is really doing together, is all collaborating on the same type of vision. Uh, we get a lot of replication, which is a, you know another science term. but the more we all collect data in the same way, the more powerful that data is, the stronger inferences we get from that learning, which means less uh, potential for making errors yeah, when we make yeah. decisions. Uh, and that's the power of the team that we're really trying to build by all working together and putting data on top of data. In our science world in the wildlife profession, you know it's very common to see site replication is, again, I hate to use these jargon terms, but Um, study areas is another way to look at them you know you'll see a paper that has two or three study areas we're talking about getting 20 plus study areas together which is very very unusual in uh, the profession and that's yeah that's what it's exciting about the work we do yeah and gives us a chance to do much better work than we've been able to do historically because we're all working together now
0: You know, Vince Lombardi said many years, by the way, if you're too young to know who Vince Lombardi is, look him up. Not you, not you, everybody else. (laughs) Vince Lombardi said at some point, you got to get the hell out of the weight room and and go onto the field. When I was a musician, uh, you know, the the, the real test came when you walked out of the practice room and you walked onto the stage. Um, How are you guys actually. well, how are you getting state agencies or anybody else to actually do the stuff you believe is the right thing to do?
1: Yeah, that is a really hard thing to do, particularly, as you might imagine, governments are not, you know, I consider them really large machines, and I've worked within a state agency uh, for 20 years of my working career before I did this job. So I have a really good understanding of government, how hard it is to move government. Uh, so, one of the big things that we did when we started building this platform was it was very inclusive. I mean, we really tried to include as many people within those organizations as we could, um, so you, you gain that buy-in and support for what we're trying to do. Uh, so that was probably, it took us three years to build the first iteration of what I just kind of des- you know spoke to. and. You know we're still developing we're still it's going to be a, a work in progress it's a living document that we build a living living model so we're constantly tweaking it we're continuing to follow that bringing everybody to the table as we design it it requires a lot of facilitation in many ways mm-hmm. to give everybody a voice in the process yeah yeah it's absolutely critical to do that and that's part of what we've done And now we're really working on some creative approaches to really help the states put the habitat on the ground. Love it. We did really well about getting the states to embrace uh, the collaborative monitoring, but it's still been difficult for us to help states get that habitat on the ground. So we're really shifting to coming up with some creative solutions to do that and rallying some of those nonprofit partners that we've talked about and bringing them their, their forces to bear in these these really special landscapes that we're trying to work in
0: so so by the way you're listening to the upland nation podcast i'm scott linda the host that's john morgan with the national bob white and grassland initiative john so i get it um you know uh, turning the battleship around takes a little time and especially when the battleship is populated by uh bureaucrats and i'm being kind there don't ask me for my true feelings on that um but So how do you do it? What are incentives that are going to get these folks off the dime?
1: Yeah, we really come up with a a really novel concept that I just had a meeting this week with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to kind of vet some of the strengths and weaknesses of our model and make sure it's it's legal and appropriate and appropriate youth with federal dollars and all <laughs> of those
0: I, I can't oh, believe well. you said it's make sure, make sure it's legal <laughs> yeah well I mean, there's a lot of when you're talking about public funding there's, yeah, there's yeah. a
1: lot of rules and regulations yeah. so believe it or not it ha- we have to go through a high degree of scrutiny wow. to even do things that, that benefit you know habitat which has societal benefits there, there's an enormous amount of uh, rules and policies and regulations you have to stay within or we get in trouble. So
0: yeah, I get uh, it.
1: and when you come up with innovative approaches like this one is, you know, you start getting onto the margins of some of those rules and regulations. So you've got to to make sure it passes muster.
0: Oh, I, I get it. Yeah. You know, I worked in politics and, and one of the things I remember most about it is virtually everybody on the other side is looking for a reason not to do what you want them to do. Sounds like you've worked in government for a long time.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I understand that, unfortunately, very well. Okay. And that's what's neat about this model. I'll tell you about it as quickly as I can. What we're trying to build at Clemson University, I'm actually kind of, you know, I don't have to be careful, but I am uh, kind of highlighting it because it's easily understood as the Amazon store of habitat management services uh, for state wildlife agencies and our partners, uh, and what really is lacking uh, in this country is a strong private sector to help the government build habitat in this yeah. country. Yeah, And it's something that we simply have to do. If you look at the history of the country, you look at our highway system, you look at our banking system, you look at our communication system, you look at the Internet. They were all public-private partnerships. And what was system and center that were buildings designed to do is to create a seamless mechanism an easy mechanism for the private sector to get more engaged in the delivery and implementation of habitat that, you know, the, the government is just not great at building things, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's why this country was built on public-private partnerships, and we've just not taken that to this arena yet. We're really trying to accelerate that with this creative idea built about building this Habitat Management Service Center at Clemson, where we take federal funding we move it into a, a land-grant university. Land-grant universities are a bit better designed to spend money, believe it or not, than, a, than say, a state wildlife agency. There's a lot more red tape mm. in those agencies. Universities are a bit more efficient spending money, but still have that, that close oversight and control when you're spending public funds, right? I mean, they still are, have a really strong infrastructure to police the use of those dollars.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
1: then what we're bringing in uh, is our nonprofit network to be that intermediary between Clemson and this host of new startup business that we hope we can inspire through our model to put that habitat on on the ground. If you're a startup business, you know, your first idea for a business model is, you know, I'm gonna form a relationship with the government. You know, that's not how we're gonna stimulate the private sector right out of the gate. We think it should be a lot easier if they can form that relationship with this huge network of nonprofit partners we have it's a much simpler uh, relationship to form and a lot less intimidating. Hey, give so, me
0: – go ahead, go ahead. No, that's okay. I think that's a good stopping point. No, well, it's and, pretty complicated. I can't get into all the nuts and bolts no, of no, it. But. No, and, and I get it, and I know it's evolving, and I know, my God, what a change. This is a, this is a watershed. It really is in a lot of ways. I'm intrigued. In a perfect world, what would an example of a uh, – typical relationship slash project B. Well,
1: uh, I'll use a, a real simple example. when I'm working with one of our nonprofit partners called Tall Timbers, where they're based out of Florida sure. and have yeah, really strong relationships in yeah. North Florida and South Georgia. So it sounds like you're familiar with them. Yeah. Uh, they also are one of the nation's leaders in prescribed fire, right?
2: Uh-huh.
1: And, and obviously, Bob White are often called the Firebird. So one of the most important things we can do out on the landscape is promote prescribed fire, which has a whole host of societal benefits that go well beyond Bob White. But let's just say, for example, uh, Georgia's Wildlife Agency wants to expand burning in their state. They don't have the manpower to do it. Um, So in this model, they invest money in Clemson University. The Clemson University establishes a contractual relationship with a group like Tall Timbers. Uh-huh. Uh Tall Timbers then contracts with a private sector burning, independent burn company that can go do those burn projects in Georgia for essentially the, the Georgia Division of Wildlife. So in, in its simplest terms, that's the type of relationship we're trying to do. If you can imagine Clemson can't form into relationships with individual burn companies in 25 states in an efficient way, yeah. um, so we're trying to carve out kind of segments of habitat delivery needs that we need through this array of nonprofits. So it's not a huge lift for anyone. You know, many hands make light work, right? Love it. And and that's the benefit of our community. What government community has a litany of nonprofits like the wildlife profession? I mean, we've just got this wealth. Of conservation nonprofit partners out there with how can we creatively take advantage of yeah. them? And this is a way that we're trying to do that.
0: Well, you know, again, getting back to our mutual backgrounds, mine, mine was always in politics, influencing government. Yours was in government getting influenced by me, but <coughs> yeah, I was one of those guys. Um, yeah. but, but, um, The idea of using the private sector uh, for a conservation, the model ha- ha- is already there because every government agency uses contractors, if you will, for all sorts of things. Absolutely. Usually, for, Absolutely. I mean, in a large part, uh, maybe that's kind of what the NBGI is doing, so I get it, and I'm, I'm, man, I'm all for it. And when you're ready to start doing burning out here, I got a whole book of matches ready to go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, well, good luck on all of that. I love it, and I'm I'm grateful that you guys are taking this, uh, what I'll call, relatively new strategic direction. Can't wait to see how it works. Now let's get down to the important stuff. You're you're a wire hair owner. You're a quail, yeah. you're a bird hunter, and now you're running the National Bob White and Grassland Initiative. All right, help us shoot more quail this year. What's your number one piece of advice? Go to where
1: it rains. Rain.
0: Uh,
1: yes. <laughs> uh, certainly, our our typical stomping grounds where we have high populations of quail have really endured some some pretty difficult. Conditions environmentally, particularly with drought, uh, some a little bit with some challenging winter situations, but the drought really hampers that reproductive output, which is obviously key when you go out and start looking for places and destinations to chase Bob White. All right, so, so you you uh, got to explain that one, a little bit. Yeah. Go to where it rained this, yeah. during the breeding season.
0: Okay, all right. Yeah. So we want rain, but we we don't want it... At the wrong time during the breeding season, and I've been following our valley quail population out here, right behind my house, for example. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so I understand rain can kill f- chicks. I understand rain grows bugs, but I don't understand the early part of all of that. So, just explain for all of us uh, how rain works when growing bob whites.
1: Well, I mean, you hit a couple of the really key facets. I mean, number one, we need that early rain to start, particularly in the arid arid part of our range where they need that to grow vegetation. I okay. mean, they need All to right. grow that vegetation for cover. Um, and as you highlighted, that vegetation, uh, when well uh, hydrated and thriving, generates that bug population, which is absolutely critical. Now, there are some moments as you've also highlighted, when those chicks are very susceptible. And unfortunately, with what we've seen with climate change, which I think few can argue the climate change is happening, it's just, is it, you know, is humans accelerating it? That's probably more of the debate, I think, at this point than anything else. Uh, I think we all recognize that, you know, we have much more drastic weather events and we're seeing these very high volumes of rain. And that's what puts our, our chicks at risk. Uh, frequency of rain over the course of 30 days, how often they're getting wet and how long they're getting wet Mm -hmm. really affects thermoregulation, which means keeping themselves warm and can affect how often they get to feed. So if they're not out there being able to actively feed and they're always trying to stay warm, you couple those two things together where they're limited, you're going to start hampering chick survival. So it, it is about timing, duration, volume, all of those things play a role. And when we start getting these, you know, heck of typical rain, seems like it's a three inch rain event half the time anymore. Wow. Um, And if you're a bunch of eggs still sitting in an nest bowl and you're getting three inches of rain, are we worried about drowning out nests even? Oh yeah. So we got all kinds of issues as we see our climate changing and our precipitation patterns changing where we, sometimes you may get the same amount of rain over the course of a year, but how does it happen?
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: getting three inches at one time is not the way we really need to get it. And we're seeing that happen more and more and more, and it does come with consequence.
0: How about on the ground after all those chicks have hatched and it's uh, November and you're, yeah. you're hunting with your young and your old wire hair and they are doing great together. Uh, wh- what kind of practical hunting tip would you have whether it's habitat look for certain types of habitat characteristics or something more tactical
1: well the first lesson that probably most of your listeners know about is always follow your dog <laughs> uh, Okay, I'll always go with that yeah uh, you know you have them there with you for a reason so so follow your dog but of course you need to put them in the best chance you can to be successful Uh, certainly what I always do one of the key things particularly with Bob White hunting that I always target is that interface with escape cover woody escape cover Uh, and if you look at all the literature on Bob White it's very rare that you see the vast majority of their time is within largely a softball throw of some kind of woody escape cover Mm -hmm. so if you are not putting yourself in that kind of area consistently you are not going to frequently encounter northern Bob White so it sounds simple, but, you know, I think a lot of people overly focus on a food plot, for example. Not all food plots meet that, that definition. So certainly they spend some time in there, but if they're in that area where the food plots, you know, in close proximity to that escape cover, you know, that's where you need to be focused in your efforts. So, you know, one of the big keys to me is, is focusing on that woody cover. And also the other key that we talk about a lot with Bob White is bare ground. Um, which basically is a symptom of how long it's been since it's disturbed. Mm. So if you're in an area that you don't see a lot of bare ground, you know that that area hasn't been disturbed, and it depends on what part of the country you're in. You know, the Midwest, that's why they always have quail. They they always have some degree of bare ground, right? But when it starts raining, as we talked about earlier, you get a lot more vegetative growth, a lot more duff, which is kind of dead vegetative material on the ground, that is not as attractive to Bob White. They need to so, be able
0: to run around unfettered. Is that the basic idea? Yeah,
1: yeah, they really favor uh, bare ground uh, because they're you know they're not like a turkey that's a real strong scratcher. You yeah, know, they're the yeah. a light scratching bird. They, they're not. That is not their strength. Uh, they want to see bare ground to every extent possible. So when you're in an area that gets a lot more rain focus on those areas that have examples of bare ground and you put that in concert with either a food plot or woody cover now you're putting all the pieces together to really start increasing your chances of finding birds and of course finally we've got you've got to be in areas that have larger contexts of it's not just one little farm here oh this farm's great but if it's in an island in a sea of nothing you know, the chances of having high degree of encounters are going to be low, right? You've got to be in as good of a landscape scenario as you possibly can, which just means there's abundant habitat and maybe in small pieces, but at least it's there in the landscape that'll have the potential to generate more consistent bird numbers year after year.
0: Okay, so I got one more question. By the way, you're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden. That's John Morgan with the National Bob White and Grassland Initiative we talked about fire we talked about woody cover we talked about bare ground and and you know uh i was hunting this separate species altogether. but i was hunting a draw last week mm-hmm. that, that had been burned <clears throat> two years before there were qu- the valley quail and chuckers in that draw yeah before the fire and after the fire okay yeah so you touch off a fire in in loblolly pines or whatever they are that are growing in your bobwhite habitat which john i hope you know better than your chucker country but (laughs) there are birds there are birds there they see that fire they smell that fire maybe they feel that fire they go away but they come back what's the key to coming back
1: yeah, that's a, another super good question, particularly as it relates to fire, because it's one of the issues we've seen, particularly in the Deep South, that still has a really strong fire culture. We still need to, of course, expand it. But there has been a Which, tendency... Oh, by to... the
0: way, by the way, strong fire culture would be a great name for an arena hairband.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I do like that. Yes, I think it would be. But
0: anyway, um, back to the science.
1: Yeah, <laughs> the, what happened is we've really expanded the size of our prescribed burn units.
0: Uh And
1: and that can be problematic if you're a Bob White manager. Um, You know, you start seeing, you know, 1,000 acre, 500 acre burn units, and you think about, you know, they used to say quail habitat, you know, ideally is, you know, 40 or 50 acres, but in the modern world, you're looking at acreages that are pushing 100 to 300 acres more commonly, just because of the marginal nature of the landscape. Sure, yeah we're essentially burning, it'd be like the equivalent of saying, we're going to burn your entire house down um, and good luck living there for a while. Right. Yeah. So yeah. we're really trying to educate. Uh, and it, it does make it a bit more difficult because you have to, it takes a bit more effort to small, you know, burn smaller burn units, but we really don't ever want to see any burn units as much as possible to be much larger than 200 acres ever. Uh... And, you know, if we can keep them, you know, fifty. Uh, 50 acres is even better you know so this patchwork of burn and unburn is what we're really hoping to find this balance instead of just this broad uh you know 500 acre blacked out yes it will grow back and it depends on the time of year you do the burning and you know we could have a whole podcast on you know the ecological way to burn uh, because you get different vegetative responses based on different conditions and times of year that you burn right Uh, So that plays into it as well. A lot of the traditional burning tends to happen late winter. Yeah. So in that situation, it greens up quite quickly into the new year. But we have to do a lot of burning if you're trying to thin out woody growth. We need to burn during the growing season. So when you do that, you can be limiting some of that fall and winter cover, depending on the timing when that fall and winter burn happens. So you have to be really thoughtful about how you do that, when and what extent, but you're doing it for a very specific management reason. Sometimes those management reasons where it's already gone so far that the quail aren't using it as much anyway, so the loss isn't as great per se, but it's not always that way. Uh, So you have to really be thoughtful about the extent and the timing of your burning, Uh, and that's what the science is of, of what we do.
0: There you have it. Uh, this is the guy who knows of what he speaks. John Morgan is the director of the National Bob White and Grassland Initiative. If somebody wants to learn more about your organization, John, what's the uh, website address for you? It's
1: We just changed it with our new uh, name change, which makes it a bit easier. It's nbgi.org.
0: nbgi.org is where you learn more. John I learned something. I'm sure everybody else did, too. Thanks so much for being a part of the Upland Nation podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And uh, just a quick reminder, we've got your two cents worth coming up. That will be all about how your shooting is going this season so far. And uh, Sean Mahaffey will join us. He'll talk about a new way to access private ground. I, uh, I and he both have described it as the Airbnb for bird hunters. You know, you don't have to sleep there, but you can certainly hunt there. We'll learn more about how that's going. Speaking of private sector initiatives, it's all coming up on the Upland Nation podcast. We're brought to you by SageAndBreaker.com. Sage and Breaker. Dot .com all spelled out. <coughs> Already this season I'm riding in a lot of other people's vehicles and side by sides and things like that. Thank you all for the lift here and there. <coughs> yes. So, but um what that means to me is I got to protect my shotguns <coughs> when I'm throwing them into somebody else's vehicle. Sage so and Breaker has some great new gun cases. Beautiful heirloom quality. <coughs> High-quality leather, the strongest canvas, and the greatest linings you can find. They're going to protect your guns no matter where you throw them. Don't be throwing them on purpose, but you know what I mean. Sign up for the mailing list, and you'll find out about new products like that before everybody else. It's all at sageandbreaker.com. Well, as our ongoing series continues, industry insider Sean Mahaffey is joining me. Uh, originally met Sean way back in the day at, in a sports show at, uh, in Phoenix, but uh, since then met him again at uh, Pheasant Fest. Sean is the founder and CEO of Wing It. Learn more about them at wingit.us. Sean, welcome to the Epland Nation podcast
3: glad to be here scott thanks for having
0: me good to reminisce a little bit off mike uh, but also to learn about something that i've believed for decades in fact i had a revelation in a float tube uh, many years ago uh, while fishing at a private ranch realizing that the only reason people will take good care of their um, recreational property is if there's some sort of a profit motive involved you guys have taken that to the ultimate level why don't you explain what wing it really is well
3: we came at wing it from the landowner perspective needing to make more profit on their ground and it's funny you mentioned the profit side of things because that's where that's where it's rooted in and there's a big demand uh, and I know it personally for, for hunting birds my whole life that we need more ground to be on. And most of the landowners that I know um, would let people onto their property if they could have a platform to manage it with where they didn't have to deal with them every day. Um, so it, it, it's a pretty simple concept.
0: It, yeah, but in the devil is the detail
3: absolutely absolutely and you know we've we we've thought we were going to be able to have this out by this fall but in the striving drive to keep this easy for the hunters the fishermen the campers we're trying to create the best user experience possible so we've taken a little extra time to be able to facilitate that um and the details are immense. They're way over my head. I'm not that guy. We've got a great, <laughs> we've got a great team working with us uh, on the on the technical side, and they are truly making it one of the best websites that's going to be out there. Um, to be able to make it easy, where in just a couple of clicks, you're going to be able to rent land uh, for whatever day you want it. Um, and go on, pay your fees, and then provide your, your customer experience afterward to the landowner so he can improve his property. So th-
0: so there's a feedback mechanism as well?
3: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. You know, we're building this, this company on a three-legged pillar, and, of course, that includes the landowners, and our focus has to be strong on them. Uh, because without them, we won't be able to do this. Then there's the guest side, um, who has a very strong focus on them. Um, but the other focus that we 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 are really, really working hard on uh, is building the conservation side of this business. Oh, okay. And how are you doing that? Well, there's several different ways that we're doing it um, uh, and, and have slated to, to start knocking these out here pretty soon. But most of it's going to come from the guest side you know being able to donate uh something to that specific property um you know when they're hunting it you know like when you you know like i don't know if you'd call it like a tip or something like that but you know for the landowner to have some kind of a conservation fund for themselves Uh to be able to put towards you know more seed or leaving some you know milo strips around the edges or instead of You know, bailing all those waterways or doing something like that, they can leave that there and afford to.
0: I love it. That's a great idea. Now, that feedback question, you know, one of the best uh, walk-in programs I know about is Montana, where um, the landowner doesn't get paid a nickel unless somebody shows up. And the only reason they show up is because the land is well managed. Do do the consumers, the renters, the hunters, if you will, do they get a chance to feed back in some way to their fellow hunters so that uh, there's a rating system or anything?
3: Yeah, it's going to be a rating system. Yeah, uh, that, that's involved with that. And you know, obviously, it's hunting that, and that's what that's one of the things we're still working on right now is. How do we package that? Because, and I, I would appreciate some feedback on it. Um, we ask feedback on it all the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Because here, here's what I'm going to do if I'm the one who's hunting. I find a killer spot. Okay. Do I want to let everybody know that this is a killer spot?
0: You... I don't know if
2: I do. <laughs> so... <laughs>
0: Yeah, you know, it's just like every place else. <laughs> you're yeah,
3: right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I think we're going to keep it more general. Is yeah, the, did yeah. you find birds? Did you find deer? Did you yeah. find what you're looking for? And and kind of let it go at that. But, um, yeah, we're just – we want to make sure it's all-inclusive. And then, additionally, the landowner is going to be able to rate the guest. Yeah, yeah. As well. So – you know, if the guy leaves, you know, a 12-pack of sodas sitting on the in the ditch when he after he was there, he's probably not going to be too happy with it. But if the guy left it better than he found it, then, then you know, he's probably going to get a pretty good rating from the landowner.
0: And, and just for the record, Sean Mahaffey with wingit.us, by the way, is the website. Uh, it's not just hunting. It's not just upland bird hunting. There's also big game. There's also other forms of recreation, aren't
3: there? Absolutely. And what started this was upland hunting. Yeah. Um, I was driving down the road one day, I don't know, it was probably 2015, 2016, out in western Kansas, and I had four roosters run across the road in front of me, and I said, what if I could scan in on a sign, pay, and walk on? Yeah. And that's where it came from. And it it was instantaneous, and I marinated on it for years. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and getting into just – our main things are hunting, fishing, and camping. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we've also had the need arise and suggestions from landowners to allow people to come out and do photography, mushroom hunt, shed hunt, uh, picnic, uh, camp and fish, you know, do both at the same time.
0: Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to have access to a place where you can do what you do – on less enjoyable locations. Right. Now, now, just walk me through it. So when this thing is live and you're up and functioning, I'm a guy and I'm looking for this. So I'm going to go to wingit.us and I'm going to what? Join up, subscribe, pay a fee? How does that all work?
3: Well, right now you'll go to wingit.us because that's where we have to sign up for guests. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, right now it, on the guest side of things, Um, we have the people who are signing up prior to the website launching, which is probably going to be right around February 1st. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, They are going to have a membership that is usually going to run $15 a month or $150 a year, but they're going to get their first year for free if they go on and sign up prior to us doing the launch. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, and we are bringing in as many people as we can. Most of these people are going to be able to, they're probably going to be part of our beta testing. Sure. To go in and break it for us, and so we know what to fix and how to fix it and, and do all that stuff. But we're going to be, the point is, we're going to be on an app, and they're going to be able to download that app, and if they want to make a reservation on their phone, you know, for next weekend in western kansas they're going to be able to do that if they are driving down the road and four roosters cross the road and there's a wing it sign there they're going to be able to go look at that property immediately see if it's available and check in right there Mm -hmm. on the uh if it's available if it's not then you know so
0: and you mentioned available and i and i think what i'm getting uh the feeling you're going to do is make it relatively Uh, exclusive on a day-by-day basis. Am I correct there?
3: Yeah. When we get into the upland side of hunting, it's going to be a a little bit different than when you're waterfowl hunting or deer hunting. And and the upland hunting side, the one thing we don't want to do and we're going to suggest with with landowners is we don't want this overly abused. Yeah. Each property. You know, you only want to let people in there maybe once or twice a week. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the same time, keep it affordable for the guests to be able to do it work. In most cases, you're not going to be paying, you know, 150 a gun to walk on a place. Um, I mean, unless it's just extremely incredible, uh, most of the landowners are in agreement, you know, you only need to charge, you know, cause when we're upland hunting, we're only, we're on five or six different properties a day. Yeah. We're not on just one property. Um, and You know, if you can keep it in the 15 to 50 range, you know, $50 range per head, you're going to be pretty good. Um, But at the same time, on the conservation side of things, you also don't want to wear down your resource and let people in there every single day.
0: I get it. Absolutely. I'm all for it. And that is, you know, as a private landowner, I think there's a lot of that already, that kind of care involved, um, rotating. Parcels, for example, and things like that. Yeah. Uh, So uh, ultimately, though, the landowner, him or herself, sets the rate. Am I correct?
3: Correct. Yeah. Correct. And and the landowners have one hundred percent control over everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know what the rate is. We're just the platform. Yeah. They control over the rate, the days it's going to be hunted. Um. You know what's being hunted. You know, where waterfowl, you could open every day, literally, because they're so, tra- you know, birds are so, tra- sharks, sure. they're transient. Yeah. Uh, but pheasants and quail, you got to manage a little better. Um, deer, you even have to manage a little better. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, we, you we're, know, we're them 100% control and guiding them along the way on how to do it.
0: That's Sean Mahaffey. He's the uh, founder and CEO of Wing It Dot us I'm scott Linden this is the upland nation podcast if nobody said it already i'll say it you're kind of like the uber of public hunting access if you will
3: yeah yeah more like the airbnb there you go yeah per- even better yeah it was and that wasn't the intention we didn't come out to be like that but that's that's how it's morphed and and it's a good program to work so we're we're coming right along with it
0: Well, how are you finding uh, ground? What do you do to recruit landowners to open up their place to do a reliable, glib, articulate, witty guy like me?
3: Well, actually, what we've done so far is we've been in about, oh, I don't know, 12 or 13 farm shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And once we explain this concept to landowners uh, and farmers, the that we're we're signing on about 7 out of 10 landowners. Wow. Uh, It's been pretty remarkable. We've put on total acreage, and that's not acreage that's going to be active all the time, Mm -hmm. but total acreage of about 3 million acres in 18 states, just on those farm shows. Um, So you can see that the landowners are very, very excited about this.
0: Well, it's a no-brainer. It really is.
3: it is. You know, is.
0: and for years, and I actually did a little consulting to to somebody who could have been a competitor if they only had gotten their act together, but uh, they they found, and I'm sure you found the same thing, the biggest concern of a landowner is uh, liability.
3: Absolutely. And we actually do an individual insurance policy uh, with a $1 million, $2 million aggregate uh, for each individual landowner. Yeah. And and while you know it, it could get back to them eventually. Ours is first money out, so we're doing everything we can to protect that landowner from having to do it themselves.
0: It it does sound to me like the the real key to this is it's got to be a uh, um uh just a, a one stop shop, if you will, for both landowners and. People who want to find land to hunt. Absolutely. And Absolutely. And so if I'm looking, I'm going to go on your website, I'm going to see a map. Is that yes. how I start? Or can I search by a state or can I search by, well, on the app?
3: You're going to be able to search by all of that. You're going to be able to search by what you're hunting, yeah, where you're hunting it, and when you want to hunt it. Mm-hmm. Um, and... It, it, so if let's say you want to hunt in oh I don't know Valentine Nebraska. Okay. Which I do and, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um you're going to hunt over there, you just go in, you can even just scroll in on the map and you're going to see on the cursor what what land we have available around there. Yes, and right. and be able on the dates that you're going to be there. So it, it, it's going to um, it's really going to be easy to use. Um,
0: what is the biggest challenge these days with with this whole thing? Is it technology? Is it um, make? Is it conveying the the idea? Uh, what do you guys spend most of your think time working on?
3: Right now, I mean, we've got our marketing in place, and we've got the technology people developing this for us. And that's what we spend most of our time on is the technology. And and we could get, we have gone down a rabbit hole here and there where we wanna make it so easy that, you know, it's just click, click, click and you're done and yeah. checked out. And and we've accomplished that in a lot of ways and and we can really get tied up in that. But what we've got to finish up right now is just, we've got all the entities built. Now it's a matter of bringing them all together and making it happen. That's That's what we're doing every day right now. On the marketing side, we've got our partners already you know, lined up for the most part that we're going to start with. Um, we've got the landowner side. Uh, we're rolling out a great big marketing initiative on that here in the next couple of months um, to where we're going to be in their mainstream like our FDTV and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's a combination of everything.
0: Well, I wish you the best of luck. Pardon me. Sean Mahaffey is the CEO and founder of wingit.us. Learn more about how they're making your life a little bit easier when it comes to finding places to hunt or hike, or fish, or camp, or probably anything else that's legitimate out there. Sean, uh, thanks so much for enlightening us. Good luck to you. I've been watching you for a while there. Hope to uh, learn more and uh, maybe work with you down the road on some things. Uh, Thanks for being a part of the Upland Nation podcast.
3: Absolutely. Thanks for having us. We appreciate it.
0: You bet. Plenty more to talk about here, so uh, stick around, uh, including our social media feature called your two cents worth where we get your feed feedback i guess i'll call it on on a question i've asked there this week how's your shooting gone so far this season well you might be surprised at how many people are shooting worse than you I hear that all the time, I know, but uh, it's it's good to know that other people have as big a challenge ahead of them as I do. So let's find out how it's going this season. It might be just as much about hunting uh, success as shooting abilities. But first, let me remind you that we're brought to you in part by Pointer Shotguns. Lots of things going on at their brand new website, pointershotguns.com all the models from the uh high-end target guns to the uh, well my favorite uh the, the field guns there that they call it in fact a work of art at a price that's a thing of beauty fit and finish just fine thank you remember there's a new side-by-side en route uh, from the folks at pointer shotguns so learn more about the entire line semi-automatics over and unders and soon A side by side, as well as a kind of an entry level youth gun, things like that. It's all available at pointershotguns.com. Well, I love these because I get insights into oh, so many things other than the question that I ask. And this week uh, on the social media pages, I asked a pretty simple one. So far, How's your shooting gone this season? Some inspiring and amusing stories there. Philip Urban tells us his NAVDA chapter. They got together, there's five of them out there, including their newest member and her dog on their first ever hunt of any kind. They saw birds, didn't get any shots. The day was still on target. Hey, everybody in the chapter and your newest member, Keep up the good work. Michael Augello says he's in a woodcock slump. Can't hit any of the... Hit, I can relate, Michael. I've killed as many alder branches as I have woodcock. Uh, got one mounted on the wall here just to remind me how bad a shot I am. Marty Martell has been pretty lucky. He says probably shot 40 boxes of shells at Claybirds in the off season, and that helps. Hey, I can testify to that. Thanks again to everybody at Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School for your help there. Move, mount, shoot. Mark Frank also spent a good amount of time at the trap field. Uh, His connection rate increased significantly. Jeff Kimura. I can relate. Mine were valley quail, yours were mountain quail. Found one of the four you shot. I hate that feeling, even with a great dog. And Flick is a rock star when it comes to hunting dead. We still lose a bird once in a while. Count it against the limit, but uh, still lose a bird. Here, for Jeff, the cover wasn't so heavy, but um, just couldn't find, oh, no more dog to assist me. Well, I feel for you. East Coast Uplander says and shows he's got a great photo it, speaking of alder branches he's got a he has no issues connecting on the trees there's a beautiful shot i hope you have got that as your as your um screen saver on your uh phone east coast uplander it's a great shot you you killed that alder good and dead Mike LaRoe says, I got my self-imposed season limit on Woodcock early. By the way, his limit is nine. But I'm struggling on Grouse. Four in the freezer out of 57 pointed and shot at with a bunch of easy shots. Mike Laroe, I will not give any more of the details there, but I know how you feel. You know, years ago, the Rough Grouse Society asked me to write a story for them about my grouse hunting with them at their national hunt. And one thing that struck me is exactly what you talked about here. 57 pointed and shot at with a bunch of easy shots. You guys, uh, there's a reason you have two counters on your lanyard. One, how many shots, and the other one, how many flushes you saw or heard that's what the thrill is with you guys i get it and i'm glad for you uh david DeSmither, (laughs) he's complimenting the forest management which i think is a left-handed way of saying no (laughs) i feel for you david and everybody else thanks a lot for your uh, hunting reports i guess is what i'll call them Uh, We are brought to you in part by trulockchokes.com. Yeah, if you're not shooting very well, the simplest way to improve it is to put in some professionally designed, well-engineered choke tubes. Lots of incentives at trulockchokes.com. We're spelling trulock, T-R-U-L-O-C-K, trulockchokes.com. Get a free choke tube case or free shipping, a 10% discount depending on how you buy your stuff. It's all there. Learn more about what they've got to offer, both in the way of technical advice. (laughs) Yeah, we could all use some of that. And some education as to why good, well-engineered, high-quality choke tubes are the simplest way to revamp your crappy shooting. Time to call it a day here. I'm heading out again tomorrow for another hunt. Uh, This time on Ringnecks, wish me luck. Maybe I'll shoot slightly better than usual. Have a full report for you coming up. Appreciate all of you who comment at the social platforms and those who left ratings and reviews. Hey, Rick Ray, sure appreciate the good words on your Apple podcast review. Glad you're still enjoying it. Years into our career together were made possible in part by Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products, Pointer Shotguns, Mid-Valley Clays, and Shooting School, Ringneck Nation of Huron, South Dakota, where I am right now, and True Lock Chokes. And by the way, if you want more information in the meanwhile, from shooting advice, from experts, not from me, from dog care and training, to finding new places to go, visit us at findbirdhuntingspots.com. And until next week, good luck out there. Shoot straight, be safe. I'll see you on the road. I'm Scott Linden. Thanks for listening.